you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to kind of read the end of Genesis chapter 8 and then into chapter 9. I've entitled the message, Life After the Flood. The last time that we looked at Genesis, we really looked at Noah and his family getting into the ark and God shutting the door, but that's kind of where we left it. And so we're going to pick up after the floodwaters recede. Let's start in a word of prayer and we'll dive into Scripture this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we've had to hear um, of the ministry at Hampton Bible Camp this summer. Thank you for Ben and his commitment to serve you. Thank you for his family. Thank you for what you're doing in the lives of his family members. We had an opportunity a few weeks ago to hear him share a little bit more about that in our prayer time. God, to hear of how you saved campers this year, transformed their lives, the impact that a daughter had on her unsaved mom and the ministry that she had at camp. God, we thank you so much for the way that you worked in in and through Hampton Bible Camp this summer. We pray, God, for Ben and Ben Ganong and their families as they move into the off-season, as it were, and yet their ministry doesn't stop. It just looks a little differently than it does in the summertime, and so I pray for strength for them. I pray for encouragement for them. I pray for refreshment and revitalization and just a renewed vigor and a renewed passion for The ministry that the camp has, God, I thank you for the partnership that we can have with Hampton Bible Camp and the ministry at the camp. Thank you for the blessing that it is to us so many times. Think of the fact that we are able to enjoy the men's conference at Hampton Bible Camp, God, and you allowed that facility to be a blessing to us as we as a group of men got together and fellowshiped and got into your word and worshiped you and Enjoyed great food. God, we thank you so much for just the long relationship that we've had together, and we look forward to continuing to strive together for the kingdom. God, we just pray that as we get into your word this morning, God, I pray that you would teach us what we need to learn, that maybe you'll remind us of some things that we've forgotten, but that we desperately need to be reminded of, and I pray that you will challenge us that in the day that we live, that we would be disciple-makers for you. We ask all of these things in Christ's name, amen. As I said, I entitled the message, Life After the Flood. I was traveling up to Heartland on Friday afternoon. Uh, The ladies were heading up to MBBI for the ladies' conference, and I headed up to visit with my mom and dad. And uh, I was going to bring my wife back on Saturday because we had a commitment down here. And as I approached a very familiar stretch of the highway just above Fredericton before Woodstock, I crested this hill. 
traveled this stretch of road a lot in my lifetime because I grew up in Heartland and returning back up there, I crested this hill and I, as I was cresting the hill, I was able to look out over the, the river valley area. And it was just particularly stunning because it was a sunny day and the leaves were turning different colors and I was able to just kind of, in a brief moment, just kind of scan this huge area. And as I was driving down the hill and kind of looking around me and I looked off to the left and I saw a particularly high point, I was at the time reflecting on the message that I was preparing for today. And I was trying to imagine how devastating it would have been or it would be if the water completely covered all of that area to the highest point that I saw off to the left. And then I started thinking, you know, there's not really particularly super high elevations in New Brunswick compared to other parts in the world. And then I started thinking, what would it have been like to live through an event where the waters covered the highest peaks on planet Earth? And that as those waters receded, the devastation that would have been witnessed when those waters had receded to their points where God had set them and the dry land appeared and how the landscape would have been different and the aftermath of that and how different the place would be than what you remember. This is certainly the reality of Noah and his family when we get to this point in Genesis chapter 8. This, this is a very different landscape, really in some sense is a very different world than what it was like before they ever entered the ark. What we're told is that the flood, between the, the coming of the flood and the duration during it and then the receding of the flood waters was a year roundabout. Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in, Acts, or in Genesis chapter 8, in verse 13, it says, In the 600 and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters had covered the earth, excuse me, the waters that had covered the earth was dried up, and Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying, and by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. This is a long period of time. And as Noah and his family, his wife and his sons and their wives emerged from the ark, it was very different in some senses than it was prior to the flood. And yet in other senses, it wasn't different at all. What we encounter here right off the bat in Genesis chapter 8 is the very first thing that Noah does, the first item of business for Noah when he exits the ark, is that he worships God and thanks him. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your 
your wife and your sons and your, your, wives, uh, the, your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, all those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, his sons' wives came out. And all the animals and all the creatures that crawl and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. I will never again strike down every living thing that, as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will never cease. Right there, I'm going to pause because we see in these verses the first thing that I want us to see in this passage, and that is that God's promise of preservation. When Noah worships God, and as Noah worships God, God in his grace and his mercy promises never to destroy the whole earth by, the, by a flood ever again. God promises the preservation of the earth. Man hasn't changed, though. We know that the landscape would have changed. The interaction of man with animals will discover changes. But man himself hasn't changed. Though Noah and his family were delivered from the punishment of the flood on a very sinful world, we learned this before, that every inclination of man was evil continually, always. That there was vast wickedness on the earth to the point where God regretted that he had made man and he decides to destroy all of mankind, all living things, with a flood. And even though man hasn't changed, God promises to pre preserve the earth. I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think about the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God just in that promise. That even though God still knows the human heart and its wickedness, He says, I'm, I'm never going to destroy the earth the way I just did. And then I'm going to put some things in place so that you can be reminded of that promise that I'm giving when he laid it out for Noah. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. Much to some of our chagrin, he mentions winter and cold, unfortunately. But the changing of the seasons is a constant reminder of us that God promised that he wouldn't do that. I just, maybe as a, a side note, as a bit of an application, I, I think of how that applies to us today. I think for those of us that know scriptures, that 
have trusted Christ as Savior, we are constantly reminded of God's goodness and His grace. When we see the changing of the seasons, we often reflect on that. I, I do that. I, I love the fall season. Most of us probably do. We like the changing of the, color, the, the leaves, the different colors. We maybe like the crispness in the air. We don't like where it's going, but we might say, you know, I really like it when it's kind of just, you know, that crisp, cool air on a fall day. Maybe it's because I like football, college football, so that makes me think of college football. I don't know, but I do think about the fact that God is the one that's causing the seasons to change that it's God's creation, and that it's beautiful, and that we enjoy it. But I regularly think of how God is allowing these things to happen year in, year out, by His prescribed sovereignty. And yet we live in a world, in a society that knows nothing of God's promises. And this is a promise that even our society doesn't really know about and doesn't think about, and it impacts kind of how things go, how people think, what they concern themselves with. I just found it interesting that sometimes uh, we hear in our culture, in our society, these anxieties and worries about things that God has already made promises about. I just want to read this. It's an article from the CBC. It was written in August 2022. But this is where our friends, our neighbors, our, our children, our, the people around us, where we find ourselves. This is information that comes at us. In southern Ontario, other researchers are trying to figure out how young people can best manage their climate anxiety. It is something that's talked about today. UNICEF's annual report card released in May ranked Canada as being 28 out of 39 developed countries when it comes to overall environmental well-being of children and youth. However, so ranks 28th out of 39. In other words, our youth in our culture are some of the worst in the developed world when it comes to anxiety about the climate. Yet Canada is ranked second in youth environmental knowledge. We are one of the best to inform our young people about the climate and climate change and all of this sort of stuff, and yet we ranked some of the worst when it comes to how many people in our culture are absolutely anxious and afraid about where the climate is going, as our society tells us. Basically, they say, we have a lot of kids who are really aware of how we're not doing enough to fight climate change. That is a perfect illustration of why climate change is causing our youth so much anxiety, says Anna Guntz pediatric ICU doctor in, uh, at London Health Science Center, where she focuses on how climate crisis affects children. What I just want to say is this. Our culture tells us one thing, which all it's doing is creating massive anxiety for our young people. And yet, 
the scriptures tell us something very different. That God, through the seasons and the changes from summer and winter and night and day and cold and warmth and seed time and harvest, reminds me of a promise that God made way back in Genesis chapter 8 that, you know what, I'm not going to destroy the whole earth again the way I did before. Now, we understand that during the tribulation, there are going to be parts of the earth that will be destroyed because of God's judgment. But we're not careening the world to some cataclysmic disaster based on what we're doing because God has said, you know what, the earth's going to endure until I say it doesn't endure anymore. And I don't need to be worried about that, and I don't need to have this deep anxiety about where things are going, because I believe in a God that's big enough that when he says, you know what, I, I, I'm going to have the earth endure until I say it doesn't, and that's the way it is, I can say, you know what, I can trust that God's got everything under control. And God reminds me of that season in and season out. See, God promised the preservation of the earth and he's going to decide how things go. He's going to decide when it comes to an end. He's going to one day recreate the heavens and the earth for us as believers to be able to enjoy it. These are things that we get to look forward to. These are things that actually impact us in their day and age in which we live the way that we hear things. We need to remember God's promise here. God's promise continues on because he talks about the covenant that he has with Noah, and we get into that in chapter 9, and I want us to look at that in the time that we have. And we're really probably only going to get to verse 7, though we could continue on because it really does continue on until verse 17, but we see the Noahic covenant, a new start in a very different world. It's really the second thing that I want us to see, a new start in a very different world. And when I say a very different world, it, it does look differently than when we hear the promise and the blessing from the, this passage that makes us think about the promise and the blessing that God gave to Adam way back in chapter 1. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As soon as we hear that, we're going... I think I've heard this before. We should say, I think I've heard this before. Because in chapter 1, verses 28 to 30, this is what God said to, to Adam after he created God, a man in his image. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. This is in the garden. This is before sin has entered the picture. This is a perfect setting it says, then God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But when I say that this is a new start in a very different world, it's different from for Noah after that statement. See, for Adam and Eve, it was be fruitful and multiply and subdue and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the bird of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. See, they were given a dominion mandate. Look, everything is under your control. 
Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it. We learn that Adam names all the animals because he has that authority over creation that God has given to him. But for Noah, things are different. We see similar statements at first. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that was what Noah and his sons and their wives, their families were supposed to do. But then God says this to Noah. He says, the fear and the terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth. Every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and every fish of the sea, they are placed under your authority. They are placed under his authority. But you know what? Where Adam and Eve were able to subdue the earth and rule over it, it's very different from Noah now. For Noah, the fear of him is going to be in the animals. Now, when he tries to rule over the earth, it's not going to be the same, and it's not going to be easy, and the animals aren't going to be responding the way that they're supposed to, or they once did with Adam and Eve, because sin's now in the picture. We have the be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's the same. Subdue it, rule over it. That's Genesis 1. Now it's fear and terror of you in Genesis 9. How many of you are hunting right now? How many of you have the animals just coming to you, to your doorstep, and just saying, I'm here, kill me. I meet for you. I know, I know that Pastor Josh talks about this. In this area, you guys are babied a bit. <laughs> Pastor Josh says it's not really hunting, it's harvesting. But the reality of it is, is that this fear and terror looks a few different ways when it comes to the animal life for us. Animals tend to run from us. You hunters know that. Get a great shot, you're lining it up, and one little sound, boom, it's gone. That buck's out of here. Sometimes that fear and terror of the animals causes them to attack us. And sometimes that fear and terror causes animals to disobey us. I think of our beloved dog. In one instance where I was bringing her, I don't even know how it happened. It was my fault, I'm sure, because it certainly wasn't that very intelligent animal's fault. I was at the back door, going to take her out, put her on the leash so that she could go outside. And uh, I hadn't grabbed the, 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 the call, her collar yet, and I open up the door, and she bolts. And she's down the, she's through my yard, backyard, she's through my neighbor's backyard. I'm running after her, I'm yelling at her, I'm telling her to stop. And she stopped, no, she didn't. She just kept on running. I don't know if it's fear and terror, but certainly she should have been terrified after I got her. So I was not happy. But she certainly didn't obey the way that I wanted her to obey. And God's telling Noah things are different. Because sin has entered the picture, 
I'm going to put a fear and terror in the animals for you, and, and they're not going to obey. They're going to attack sometimes. They're going to run from you. It's going to be different. And I got thinking about that. Like, sometimes we read the words and we, we hear that, but I, I want you to think about that for just a second. So, before the flood, God brings all the animals to him. He didn't even have to try. You know, all the animals that needed to be on the ark came to him because God led them to him. He's on the ark. He's working with the animals. There's not fear and terror in the animals at that point while they're on the ark with Noah. And then the floodwaters subside. The, the ark is on the mountains of Ararat. Uh, everything dries out. God brings them out of the ark. And within a very short period of time, all of a sudden these animals that worked so well with them in the ark, all of a sudden were behaving very differently than they were before. Sometimes I don't think that we really think through how much that would have been a stark change just in that little instance, that, that one thing. Noah all of a sudden realizes this is not the same world that it was even before the flood. Things are different now. But not only that, but Noah in this new covenant is allowed to eat meat, which was never sanctioned before. God says this to him. He says, every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. That was not the way before. And we can assume, and I think safely assume, that prior to the flood, they still only ate, they still only ate vegetables. They only ate fruit. There is no implication that this, the sanctioning of a killing of an animal for food was given prior to the flood. It's now given to Noah and those coming out of the flood. And now they're giving the permission to now kill an animal and eat it. It's not just plant life that they can live off of. For many of us, we're super thankful for that. So we love to go to the local steakhouse and grab a steak and, and enjoy that. Throw some hamburgers on the barbecue and enjoy that. I certainly do. But as God gives this permission where they can now kill and eat... He actually, in this moment, also institutes human government. Because what he says here is this. He says, and I will require, let me step back one verse. I gave you the green plants. I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. You're not allowed to eat raw meat. You're not allowed to drink blood. This is off limits. You can kill an animal and eat it, but you cannot eat it with the lifeblood still in it. He says, and I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Bible scholar after Bible scholar will say, this is the institution of human government. At this point, God says, if someone murders another individual, that person's life has to be given in it as an account. And God says, 
I will require it from any animal, from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require the person's life. But he's giving human beings, government, the ability to exercise that penalty. Why? Well, we can say that God here is emphasizing the fact that he sees life as important. It's got inherent value. And prior to this, we saw murder enter the picture. In no time when man fell did murder, the taking of a human life, enter the picture. And I was trying to put myself in Adam and Eve's position, and it's really hard because nobody wants to think about this, but I was really thinking about this. Because again, we read the words and we think about it and we keep it kind of as, as Ben said, kind of as a, a theological exercise. We keep it away from us a little bit and we don't really try to bring it in a little bit more. But I want you to think about it. Adam and Eve sin against God. They disobey God. Sin enters the picture. Their very first sons... Right? The very next generation, what do they experience? They experience one son killing their other son. Out in a field, bludgeoning him to death. I don't, I don't know how it happened. But they saw the reality and the devastation that sin brings in their own family right away. And at that time, God didn't require the life of Cain when he took the life of Abel. There's nothing in Scripture that implies that Lamech, who also killed somebody, actually had to give his life up in justice for that. And mankind just got more and more sinful. Their, their, their wicked desires and thoughts just got worse and worse and worse till we get to Je Genesis chapter 6 and God says, I'm going to destroy every living thing on the earth because of the sinfulness of man. And here in the Noahic covenant, God establishes human government to restrain evil. Does human government deal with, with, with evil? Can it solve the problem of sin and evil? It absolutely cannot. We sometimes in our culture put way too much stock in our government, quite frankly. There are things that human government cannot do. There are certain things that human government is useful for. It can restrain evil, but it can't solve evil, and it uses force to try to restrain evil. How do I know that? Because in Genesis chapter 13, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 13, this is what we hear about government. Paul says it, says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of, one, uh, of the one in authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason, for it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. That was, that's the intention of, God, of government from God, that it is to use force to deal with wrong. The problem is this, is that another thing that 
is inherent in human government is that it cannot develop morality. It can legislate things, it can enforce things, but it doesn't develop morality. Morality comes from God. It comes from an ultimate lawgiver, and that is God. God is the one who lays down the law, what is right and what is wrong. The government can enforce that if it recognizes God's law, but it cannot develop morality in and of itself. And oftentimes, governments enforce the morality of those that are in government. Morality, I'm going to use those in air quotes. Something that we also keep, well, I want to say this. The law was a restraint on the desire that already existed. Because you know what? When God lays this out for Noah, does it stop murder? No, it doesn't. Later on in, 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 um, in Exodus chapter uh, 34, if I remember correctly, um, God lays that down with the children of Israel. He says very much the same thing to the children of Israel as he's laying out the laws for them as a nation, that if you murder somebody, your life needs to be forfeit. Why? Why is that so important? Because in Leviticus 19, we learn this. Excuse me, in Le- Leviticus 17, This is what God says to the children of Israel. Anyone from the house of Israel or from the aliens who reside among them who eats blood, I will turn against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have appointed it to you to make an atonement on the altar for your lives since it is the lifeblood that makes atonement. See, The life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when somebody murders somebody, there has to be an accounting. And God lays that out. And we have veered from that. Capital punishment in Canada has been completely eliminated as of 1998. At best, the government will express in laws and enforce it by, enforce by its inherent inherent power, the sense of morality that already is present or absent in its citizenry. Appreciate how Boyce put that. Our government only enforces and adheres the laws that are already present in the morality of its people or absent. And so the further we walk away from God, our government is just going to become more and more tyrannical because it has no biblical basis for morality. What can we do as a response about that? How does that apply to us today? Well, I I think we need to keep in mind some things. That as Christians, we need to continue to pray for our government. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we need to be praying for our governing authorities. I'm going to hone in on, I think, one of the most important things that we need to be praying for when it comes to them in just a minute. We can also respond as Christians by our voting. Are we voting for candidates that best stand for biblical, godly principles? I think that that's important that we consider as Christians. Are we going to solve all the government's problems? No. Are we going to make the government more godly by voting? No. But we can certainly vote for those that stand for biblical principles as much as possible. And then we do have a responsibility as Christians and as as churches to hold the government to account for the way that they're supposed to operate. 
Because we understand what God laid out for government, whether they understand it or not. But I want to end with this. See, Leviticus says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and for the children of Israel, the killing of an animal and the shedding of its blood was to make atonement, a temporary atonement for their sin. They went into the temple, they sacrificed the animal, they shed the animal's blood as an act of forgiveness of sins, as an act of atonement, but it was just a picture of what was to come. What was to come? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice for sin. See, this was a covenant that God gave with no one. Did it apply to people? Yes, it absolutely did. But it really points us towards another covenant, a new covenant. And in Luke chapter 22, we read this at communion time, but I want to read it again. Because this is what Jesus says when he institutes the Lord's Supper to his disciples. says in verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Where the animal was sacrificed for the children of Israel as a temporary atonement for sin, Jesus says, you know what, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm going to shed my blood on the cross of Calvary, and I'm going to pay for sin once for all, because I am the perfect spotless Lamb of God. Where government can't deal with sin, God says, Jesus says, I'm going to deal with sin. I'm going to provide forgiveness for sins. I'm going to provide salvation for sins. And we as Christians need to realize that the biggest and most important responsibility that we have is to humble ourselves before God and that we are to engage our society and our culture with the message of Jesus Christ. We are to be God's image bearers as we are reminded in this passage. Whoever sheds a human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. And as followers of God, we are image bearers of God. We are to be proclaiming the goodness, glory, and salvation of God. And so we go to the world around us and we say, be reconciled to God. When we pray for our leaders, what are we praying for? First and foremost, we need to be praying that our government officials trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, it says this, From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known, the, known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we not Excuse me, we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Really, that's the Noahic covenant is just the foundation of the next covenant and the next covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, then the Mosaic covenant, and then the Davidic covenant to the new covenant. 
reconciling people to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And as he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We remembering the promise that God gave. Are we remembering the importance of what God has called us to do as image bearers of God, to proclaim the goodness and glory and salvation of God to the world around us? Our most important thing as Christians to do is to go out to the world around us who is condemned already, has been reminded us this morning, and say, be reconciled to God. The government can't save you. All the things that you're pursuing can't save you. Only God can save you. Be reconciled to God. Christian, maybe we're here this morning and we've put our cares on a lot of other things that don't really make any difference. Maybe we're far more worried and concerned about things that God has actually even promised otherwise. Maybe we've actually thought that the government's going to solve our problems, which it cannot. Maybe we need to confess that we have stopped looking to the Lord and His promises and His provision and what He's commanded clearly for us. We need to confess that. I think of what Second Chronicles says, and I want to just close with, with this passage. After the dedication of the temple, this is what God says to Solomon and the people. He says, if I shut the sky and there's no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, and if I send pestilence on my people, and my people who bear my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. I believe it starts first and foremost with us that we confess our sins and we seek God's face, and we turn from our evil ways, and he will hear us from heaven, and he will forgive our sins. And I believe that he would bring healing to our land. And that healing at least carries with it the importance of us going out and going to everybody around us and say, please be reconciled to God. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, as Ben reminded us from John 3, if you don't believe in the Son of God, you are condemned already. And far more concerning is your eternal destiny in, in hell, in the lake of fire apart from God, than anything that might happen on this planet. And my... Uh, my my imploring today is trust Christ as Savior. Be reconciled to God. Recognize that Jesus shed his blood to save you from your sin on the cross of Calvary. Christian, maybe we just need to pray that when we're engaging people around us that we just have that heart, that love for them as someone created in God's image to say, please be reconciled to God. God convicted me of that when I was getting my hair cut this week. 
that I didn't take the opportunity with the person that was cutting my hair to say, be reconciled to God. I'm just as guilty as the next person for not taking every advantage that I have. But we desperately need to.